Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from today's guest, Becky Cooper. Ahead of our conversation, enjoy this reading from Becky, who shares an excerpt from her book, We Keep the Dead Close. Here's more from Becky. Many undergraduates ask, I tell them that I'm here writing a book about archaeology in the 1960s. Anything in particular, they ask, eager to make some kind of connection. Not really, I say. Oh, cool, they say, meaning, you left your job for this? I don't tell them what I'm working on because I'm unwilling to turn it into small talk. It's too weird, too obsessive, too personal. I don't tell them about the bulletin boards in my treehouse room with theories and photos, a map of Iran, a blueprint of an apartment building, all stuck to my cork boards with dissection needles. I don't mention my shelf topped with talismans, assured of milky rama chert, kodachrome slides of a farm out in Bolton, a profile gauge for drawing pottery. I try to laugh off the ribbed metal baton on my keychain when it clunks on the dining hall table. I definitely don't mention that a Harvard police officer gave it to me and taught me how to wrap my fingers around it and lift it over my shoulder ready to jam down in the soft triangle of flesh between someone's clavicle and shoulder blade, like an ice pick. I'm here because, for the past ten years, I've been haunted by a murder that took place a few steps away. It was told to me my junior year of college like a ghost story. A young woman, a Harvard graduate student of archaeology, was bludgeoned to death in her off-campus apartment in January 1969. Her body was covered with fur blankets, and the killer threw red ochre on her body, a perfect recreation of a burial ritual. No one heard any screams. Nothing was stolen. Decades passed, and her case remained unsolved. Unsolved, that is, until yesterday. Some stories stay with us, and the ones that do often shape our lives in ways that we never thought were possible. This is the case for Becky Cooper, whose chance encounter with a harrowing collegiate tale ignited her 10-year exploration into the unsolved murder of Jane Britton, an archaeology graduate student at Harvard who takes center stage in Becky's sophomore book, We Keep the Dead Close. In this compelling mystery meets memoir, Becky creates a rich tapestry of Jane's life as she attempts to unearth details around the tangled investigation of her death. But as someone who is no stranger to the allure of storytelling, Becky's immersion into Jane's world ultimately provoked a deeper inquiry into the systems that shape, and at times compromise, a narrative. 
for Becky, giving a voice to Jane's life while also sharing snippets of her own experiences throughout the book, ultimately served as a critical reminder about the power and responsibility that comes with telling stories about the past, especially as we navigate a complicated present. And in this interview, Becky shared more about these ideas, what initially led her to Jane, how slowing down informed her writing process, and what she's learned about the delicate balance of reconstructing and reflecting on a person's story. This was a fitting conversation for our current climate, so I won't give too much more away. And on that note, here's my conversation with Becky Cooper, author of We Keep the Dead Close. My name is Becky Cooper, and I think I'm currently trying to figure out who I am outside my work, but I think some of the things that I know that I love lately have been cold water swimming and smoking and gardening. I think to your point about trying to figure out who you are outside of writing, you've been immersed in this story, Jane's story, for so long. It would be great to kind of have you talk about storytelling and maybe share a story, whether it's an article, a poem, or a book that made you slow down or sort of re-inspired your relationship with writing. I love that question. I mean, I think there are two different ways something can inspire me to slow down. I think one of them recently has been a book called Taking the Plunge, which is kind of a photo essay of many people who have also been drawn to cold water swimming. And it's little glimpses into their life into why they were drawn to such a seemingly masochistic sport. And it's really, I think, about the way in which cold water slows you down and forces you to contemplate the current moment um, because you're you're too in pain to do anything else. But then the rush and the exhilaration and the feeling of being brave kind of surmounts the experience or is the transcendent feeling that you walk away from. And then I think the other thing that just in terms of writing that's really slowed me down because I want to inhale or I, I, it's the opposite. I don't want to inhale it because I want to savor every detail is the lyrical writing of Sarah Stewart Johnson. She is a planetary scientist, and she writes about, for instance, the search for extraterrestrial life on Mars with this kind of poetry. And so reading her book, The Sirens of Mars, or her essay called O-Rings, you just kind of want to stop and live in her crystalline world and see things through that lens. Um, this is where Sarah is talking about going to the far reaches of Australia because there are some places on Earth that are as close as we can come to what life on Mars might be like. And, you know, she spends so much of her professional work looking for what are called extremophiles, things that can live in extreme heat or extreme salt or extreme acid. And she writes, In the far reaches of Australia, there's one particular lake that stands apart from the others amid the rocks and dunes, past the rabbit-proof fence in the Jilbaji Nature Reserve, past the derelict aerodrome. The surface is stippled with halite, a form of table salt that looks like freshly fallen snow. In the right place, with a good grip, you can pull out a crystal of gypsum, severed like a shark's tooth from the jaw of the earth. That's stunning. So interesting. You seem to be attracted to extremes in storytelling. And, you know, when we first connected, I think it was almost seven years ago after the release of your first book, Mapping Manhattan, what drew me to your work was your sort of inherent curiosity about things. So it doesn't surprise me that these very um, specific works kind of resonate with you. And I'm curious, 
what makes you curious as a writer and you know what have been some of the biggest changes in your life and the way you think about curiosity since that time and since your first book hmm. I don't know if my curiosity or my kind of meta curiosity about that curiosity has changed so much as I've been allowed to follow them so you know my first book was Mapping Manhattan which was a kind of art project that turned into a book where I asked people to fill out blank maps of Manhattan Island with their memories and their experiences and I was able to turn that into a kind of coffee table bound book and that to me was very much about exploring and highlighting the subjectivity of the map maker you know because I think we give so much authority to cartographers I wanted to stop and show the ways in which even when we think we're being as objective as possible, putting in all of the accurate information, we're still, whether or not we realize it, leaving a trail of ourselves. And so I, I was hoping to kind of flip that on its head and use these maps as kind of accidental biographies of the map makers who were willing to share themselves, knowingly or not, that they were leaving a kind of story of themselves. And, you know, I think after I finished mapping Manhattan, I had always promised myself that I would only then allow myself to think about Jane and think about that story that had been with me since 2009. So the same summer that I first started handing out maps, but I sort of, I told myself that I could only think about Jane if and when I finished the map book, just, just for order operations. Otherwise I was worried about never completing either of them. And so Jane kind of lived up in my head. And when I finally did finish the maps, Jane was still there and she had gained even more of a sense of inevitability as a narrative for me. And like, as I took steps toward pursuing it and eventually pursuing it full time, it felt to me like there was no other way. And I think what drew me to that, even though the maps and the story about Jane's unsolved murder were so different, I think it was also the kind of humanity within something that we think about being almost procedural, like what I'm talking about here is archaeology or detective work or the work of the historian. I think what I was really interested in there was the act of reconstruction and the ways in which we leave the fingerprints of ourselves there, even when we're not realizing it. And so I think maybe what's drawing me now to this, the stories of the extremes, I think you're absolutely right in calling it that, is possibly the after effect of having spent so long immersed in a very indoor world of archives and of, of largely phone interviews it felt almost like confessionals. And all I want to do right now is be outside and be kind of free of that. But at the same time, I think my core interest in finding the kind of surprising humanity, even within a field or a profession that we kind of write off as sterile or clinical, so something like astrophysics or any other kind of science, I'm really fascinated with how that eddies with the experience of being human. Yeah, it's such a fantastic thing that you've done, kind of turning what would probably be referred to as like a true crime narrative and making it a little bit more in depth in terms of how you're questioning certain systems and how we kind of interrogate ourselves and upholding those systems. And I think before I really get into my questions about writing the book and Jane's story, just for those who are listening who might not have general background information, do you mind giving a little bit of insight into what led you to the story before writing it? Absolutely. I was a junior at Harvard and a friend asked me if I wanted to hear a really good Harvard story. Of course, I said yes. And he launches into what I've come to think of as almost an academic horror story meets fairy tale. And he tells me about this young archaeology graduate student at Harvard who was killed in 1969, allegedly by her advisor with whom she had gone on a dig in Iran. 
And according to him, the school had hushed up the story, had forced the school newspaper to change it because they couldn't have one of their illustrious own be associated with something so tragic and so lurid. And I keep that story with me as an interesting example of the villainous side of the omnipotence of Harvard that I you know, loved some of the aspects of it. But a year later, I get the story corroborated almost by accident by two people within the department. And they tell me that that professor around whom the original rumor circulated was still on faculty. And at that point, it felt to me like it, you know, it was not only not a fable, but it also didn't seem like it was a mystery. It seemed like it was an open secret. And I felt compelled to be the one to take the rumor seriously. And it didn't even necessarily feel at that point that I was going to be embarking on a book project. It just seemed like somebody needed to be willing to, to ask the right questions and speak to the right people. And maybe it was just this kind of horrible tragedy of siloed information. And over time, it, it then took me 10 years. Over time, I realized that it, it was much, much more complicated than that. But at that point, I had also fallen in love with Jane, the main character, and felt a real compulsion to get as far as I could in, in not only solving the mystery of who killed her, but also trying to piece together who she was. Yeah, what a wild sort of moment of fate to have heard that story. And I guess at that time in your Harvard career to be so connected to it physically. You know, I think a lot of people probably can't really call this one particular type of story, but I'm curious, is there something that you consider the story not to be or something that you don't want people to kind of get distracted by <laughs> in terms of getting to some of these things? Because there's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that way of phrasing it. I think I would say that it's not a traditional true crime story. You know, I think if you're going into the book, hoping it will be a straightforward narrative whose central propulsion is the question of who killed Jane, and especially a story focused on who killed her, I think I imagine the reader will walk away disappointed. Because while the question of who killed Jane was to me a necessary one to answer, it wasn't eventually the most interesting question that I asked. You know, I, I think the book is about who Jane was, but also about what happens to a community when a tragedy is left unsolved for 50 years. But it's a community that is, for better and for worse, closed off to so much of the rest of the world. And so these circles of gossip and almost oral histories take hold. And I wanted to explore the ways in which the myths that were passed down through the generations of graduate students, for instance, not only may have contained some truth in them about what happened to Jane that night, but also revealed something important about the values and the mores of the experience of the graduate students themselves. And in what way were these myths ways of vocalizing a story that otherwise was too dangerous to say out loud. I think there's a, a quote that I love by a, an anthropologist named Vina Das, and she says that some realities need to be fictionalized in order to be apprehended. And so I think I was trying to work backwards in many ways from the fiction of this professor killed this woman to what is the reality that that myth, that fiction is trying to tell fascinating. I know there was so much urgency in really committing yourself to this story, but because it took you so long to really write and navigate, what did it teach you about pace and time? Yeah, I think it gave me a lot of forgiveness to myself for being the kind of person who needs to take a long time in thinking about a story. I think I really admire people who are newspaper writers who can 
work on a story as it's shape-shifting beneath them. And, and to be fair, Jane's story did do that, but I think I need to collect as much of a story as possible before I start to write it because I'm more in the kind of John McPhee camp of narrative nonfiction where he allows the structure of his piece to emerge kind of organically from everything that he's collected. And so I think until I amassed something like probably 90% of the material that I would ever get in Jane's case, I couldn't have told you how it was going to be organized. And I, I don't think I could write any other way. And I think giving myself the permission to be the kind of person who lets a story gestate, I guess, is something I hope to give myself permission to do. And I think the other thing too, is the threshold for the sense of inevitability, because I know how much a story is going to consume my life is even higher than maybe it was before. And so I think also sitting with an idea, letting yourself see if it accrues mass and if it, if it suddenly starts to weigh itself and become real and you have to pursue it, then that is the direction you should take. But I think that process of knowing whether the, this is something that you can't live without really does take time. And I think it's interesting, the timing in which you wrote about Jane's story in the case, because, you know, throughout the entire book, you're making note to, you know, the political aspects within the police department and just noting how the lack of technology and resources did contribute to key elements being sort of confirmed and deterring the case from being solved. And I'm curious, you know, as you wrote this in an age of digital ubiquity and tools and the ability to communicate with others, you know, what did it teach you about writing stories about the past? One of the things is that I hope we stay aware, even as biographers and historians will have access to their subjects' email inboxes and texts and whatnot, that the fact of more information does not necessarily lead to a narrative that is more complete. That I think we need to remain vigilant of the ways in which the person writing it will influence the way that the narrative is reconstructed. And also doubly be aware of the ways in which the person that they're writing about curated themselves a certain way in their writing. And so I think, you know, the book ends partially with a discussion of ancient DNA technology. So looking at really, really, really old skulls to figure out ancient migration patterns. And the article from which I learned a lot about it starts, there's a, there's a quote that starts the book. It's one of the epigraphs. And the author of it says, you know, is this, is this new technology that's really kind of telling us what it means to be human or, you know, changing the way we understand ourselves? Or is this us with the gloss of science falling into the old traps of these seductive narratives? And I, I want to be very careful moving forward as we get more and more information and as we get more connected to make sure that I'm remaining as critical of and aware of the uncertainty of the whole process of, of that kind of historical reconstruction. I can imagine, but it's probably, you know, just on an emotional level, hard to separate yourself from that sometimes because you are learning about a person and trying to do their story justice. But I also keep thinking back to one of the main, I guess, suspects at the time, which obviously that narrative shifts 
later on in the book, but his whole thing is prioritizing story over science or really leading with story as a form of seduction in a way. So it's probably just such an interesting thing to face and reflect on too, as you kind of pull yourself out of the day-to-day of, of putting all of this together. Exactly, exactly. It's been an interesting meditation on, on even what's the responsibility of being a writer. In a lot of ways, I've also been thinking about that. You know, when we reconnected, I gave you a little background on how things for me have shifted. And as someone who's kind of built a career in the digital space and really started to see how I was upholding systems or things that were really not necessary or sustainable. And so, Slow Stories is kind of a culmination of everything that I'm now unlearning based on some of my experiences over the past 10 years. And I think. One of the main questions that I like to explore on this podcast, whether I'm speaking to writers or to founders or just anyone who's engaged in creativity in this age, is what this idea of slow content or storytelling means to them. And so for you, I know you've talked a little bit about, you know, your relationship with Pace, but what does that idea strike for you, especially in the context of writing a book like this? Yeah, I mean, I think in addition to just the time it takes for a structure to emerge, I mean, I think. I don't know how I would have written this book if I didn't move away from New York. I moved back into my old Harvard dorm. I got a a strange, wonderful position called an elf where I just baked cookies in exchange for room and board. And, you know, I think leaving my full-time job at the New Yorker for one in which it was, it was essentially a renewable fellowship and, and, and that's beyond kind of any writer's dream. But it was also terrifying because I now had all of the time I could ask for to do the thing that I had said for years and years that I wanted to do. And so suddenly the kind of enormity of my time's expanse put the responsibility squarely on me, which it always should have been. But I think you can always distract yourself and say, oh, but I can't because of this and this. But I think once I got there and got comfortable in the pace and in the silence and in the kind of distilled world, the absolute luxury that it was to wake up and think about this book and work on nothing but this book and then go to sleep working on this book. Like, even though I say, you know, I'm a very slow writer and it took me years and years and years, like the slowness for me was also just this like bath in the material. I wasn't rushing myself to dip in and out. Like it was, I worked on this to the point where I could kind of walk around her world. But at the same time, I think I couldn't linger too long in the luxuriating in the research collection because the tension on the other side was that I was afraid that if I took too long to write this book, that I would lose access to Jane in some way. Because I do think that, you know, what I describe in the book as a kind of alchemical bond to her was in large part founded on my sense, at least, that we shared some of the same existential fears. So this largely, I think, a sense of loneliness that went beyond just kind of looking for the right romantic partner. I think it was just feeling very much on the outside of everything while also trying to participate in it. And I I feel that less. And so I think the fear was real. You know, I, I think I truly did have to write this before I outgrew that feeling because Jane will always only be 23. I think it was a tension between having enough time to understand the texture of that world while writing it quickly enough to still have that kind of hallucinatory blurring with her. That makes sense. 
And I think it's also interesting that as you were writing the story and now that you're kind of sharing the aftermath of your experience and writing it, you know, it was during a period in the world where so much of what we had expected to be true, or even in some instances where truth and facts were being threatened. I'm sure it was interesting to kind of dip between the past and the very turbulent present. And there was a passage towards the end of the book that really struck a chord with me. And you wrote, some days I don't even know what to tell you about Jane. I know even less about whether telling a responsible story of the past is possible, having learned all too well how the act of interpretation molds the facts in service of the storyteller. I've been burned enough times to know there are no true stories, there are only facts, and the stories we tell ourselves about those facts. So that blew me away. And as you reflect on it now, and as we head into the new year, navigating the next chapter of this pandemic, what do you think is our biggest responsibility as storytellers during this time of transformation? I mean, in the context of that paragraph itself, and thank you for reading that. I, it's <laughs> That sentence, the last sentence of that paragraph for me encapsulates a lot of what I hope readers will take away from the book. Um, so jumping off of that, I think there's a responsibility to do the unglamorous, unsexy work of, of trying to unearth as many facts as possible. You know, I think that notion that there are no true stories or only true facts in, in the stories we tell ourselves, like that, that is worrisomely adjacent to fake news if you don't listen closely. And, and what I'm really trying to say here is that, you know, we need to do all of the really hard work to unearth as many details as possible. And then do the hard work of being critical of ourselves to understand how our position influences the way that we're going to shape our narrative. And then and then we shape the narrative. But I think asking ourselves those questions and being meticulous is important now in the pandemic, but always, I think, the seductiveness of stories, whether in politics or in academia or as journalists, will always be there. But it's our responsibility to go beyond that while still accepting that, you know, your job is to find pattern and to, to find meaning within the chaos. And I think to do that, to your point, it really does come down to asking those critical questions. And this is always something that I find really interesting in these interviews is to ask my guests if there is a particular question that they hope they're asked more often. So I pose that to you, you know, is there a question that you want people to ask you, whether it's about the past, present, or future, that you think is worth mentioning? Hmm. I mean, I think, I hope more people, if they're inclined to write, are asking themselves, what is the story that needs to be told? And what is the story that I should be the one to write? And I hope that it's people who aren't traditionally able to take those risks who are the ones who are asking the question most urgently. And and so my hope is that I get asked, how do I do that by people so I can, I feel like that's the question that I'm most qualified to answer, which is like, I have this deep need to write this story. How do I go about doing it? That's the question that I think I'd be best at answering. I think the question sort of just for where I'm caught in this moment now are questions about spontaneity. You know, have you heard this? Do you want to do this? Would you like to go on some crazy lark of a whatever when when it's safe? Because I think my best ideas and my best thoughts and everything are, are from experiencing the world with some torque. You know, I don't go into something knowing that 
I'm going to get something professional out of it. You know, when I was a barista in Brooklyn for three years, it was because it made me so happy and I needed to figure out how to pay the bills while I was trying to work on the story. And, you know, I had no idea that that was how Ron Chernow, for instance, and I would become friends. Like he was just spinach salad Ron who would come in like once a week and order the healthiest thing on the menu. Um, But he's since become my mentor. But I think having a bit of that permission and opportunity to be playful is something that I hope will come to pass next year. I love that. And I think, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about Jane and, you know, the letters and the entries that you included really gave a voice to her voice. And she just seemed so engaged in, you know, her interior world and then with the world around her. And I'm curious, is there one question that you think people should have asked her more often? I'm going to have to think about that. My first impulse is that people should have asked her if she's okay. Because I think she was so funny and so dramatic, like kind of theatrical um, and such a loyal friend that I'm not. And she was also kind of (laughs) melodramatic, too. You know, she wasn't going to hide her sadness. But but I worry that all of that exaggeration was still cloaking something. So even when she was saying she was worried or depressed about something, that it was still not addressing something underlying it all. And I don't know how often people stopped to try to turn down the volume and hear what was being hidden underneath all of that excess. And so, yeah, I guess that would be my inclination. Yeah, I can see where you would think that. I wonder if it was just a product of the environment of, you know, what you were kind of addressing, like the Harvard sort of culture and appearances and we'll never know, but I think it's worth mentioning that. So thank you. And, you know, I think to that larger point of turning down the noise and really trying to get to the heart of what's driving people, especially right now, what I've learned from having these interviews is that, you know, shifting our pace to really remove ourselves from the distractions or the things that are surface level is a necessary part in doing that and really connecting with others. And so There's probably a lot more that we could speak to when it comes to Jane's story and your story, but I think for the purposes of this interview, my last question is one that I think always brings these conversations full circle. And that question is, why do you think slowing down will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? And then, you know, to add to that, tell stories in a better way too. (laughs) My thesis was on David Foster Wallace, and he is a problematic, complicated figure. But but one of the things that I take away from all of my years of of reading him voraciously is that he warned of worshipping false idols, whether they're fame or money or any of the other sins that you can kind of fill your life with, with this kind of non-nourishing feed. And I think, you know, you're most susceptible to trying to fill yourself with spiritual junk food when you're racing through life. You either don't give yourself permission to slow down or you don't want to slow down because you don't want to think those thoughts. I think for the people who are able to slow down, which which in and of itself is a luxury, you know, I think the, the if we're talking about structures and systems, I think we're not understanding the need for quality and and balance of life that that is required, I think, to not have to work three jobs to make 
a living wage. But setting that aside, if you are able to slow down, I think the value of that is that you can then start asking yourself the question of what is nourishing to me? What are my values and how do I live in accordance with that? And then you can start making decisions that aren't just reactionary or aren't just trying to make you feel more superficially healed. That was Becky Cooper, author of Mapping Manhattan and We Keep the Dead Close. You can order We Keep the Dead Close anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Becky on social at the Cooper with four R's. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thanks so much for tuning in.